If you would, would you take your Bibles and open them, open them up to 1 Samuel 15? 1 Samuel 15, and here we find a tragic story full of disobedience, regret, and grief. So let's read the whole chapter and let the Word of God do its work on our hearts. Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. So now obey the voice of the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that he has, and do not spare him. But put to death both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Tilium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and sent an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart! Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. You showed loving kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul struck the Amalekites from Hevelah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he seized Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to devote them to destruction, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not established my words. And Samuel became angry and cried out to Yahweh all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of Yahweh, I have established the word of Yahweh. But Samuel said, What then is this sound of the sheep in my ears, and the sound of the oxen which I am hearing? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. But the rest we have devoted to destruction... Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh spoke to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And Yahweh anointed you king over Israel? And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites? And fight against them until they are consumed? Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? 
but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh and went on the way which Yahweh sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and had devoted to destruction the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed trespassed against the command of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now please forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship Yahweh. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. Then Samuel turned to go, but Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the Eternal One of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship Yahweh your God. So Samuel returned, following after Saul, And Saul worshipped Yahweh. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag near to me, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him in chains, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has departed. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went to his house at Gibeah of Saul. So Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is a sobering reminder of God's attitude towards sin. He hates it. The consequences of the Amalekite sin was complete annihilation. And the consequences of Saul's disobedience was complete and utter rejection from the throne. The story is intended for you to feel the grief and pain that sin brings upon people. We see in verse 10 how Samuel was distressed and caused him to cry out to Yahweh all night. And again in the end of verse 34, it says that Samuel grieved over Saul. That should be our attitude as well. But a believer expressing grief over sin is not what's shocking in this passage. What shocks the reader of this passage is that God is said to regret making Saul king over Israel. 
How can this be? How does the eternal and sovereign God regret anything? After all, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3. In His book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Psalm 139 16. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand. Daniel 4.35 And you know that God doesn't change. In James 1.17 There is no variation or shifting shadow with Him. Not only this, but the Lord is perfectly happy within Himself. He is blessed forever. Existing as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion and happiness with one another. Each person fully satisfied and happy. This is known as the blessedness of God. He is blessed forever, all sufficient, and needs nothing and finds all comfort in himself. One Genevan theologian said, For who would not call God happy, who is in need of nothing? finds all comfort in himself, and possesses all things, is free from all evil, and filled with all good. Imagine if everything that you wanted was good. And then imagine you got everything you wanted. Wouldn't you be happy too? And so here's the question. How can a sovereign God, whose decree is eternal, unconditional, unchangeable, and exhaustive to every detail, who is perfectly happy in himself and gets whatever he wants, regret anything? The answer that the Scripture gives us is sin. Now understand, this language of regret is not saying that God actually changed or regretted anything that he decreed in eternity past. And even within the chapter itself, Samuel rebukes Saul on the grounds of God's immutability, his unchangeableness. He says in verse 29, The Eternal One of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It's not as though God actually changed his mind. Rather, it is that God's timeless affection towards sin, rebellion, and insubordination is that he hates it. Psalm 7, 11, and 12 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. The language of regret when attributed to God is what's called anthropopathic language, and it's intended to teach us something true about God in baby talk. Just as God is said in Isaiah 40, verse 12, to have a hand that measured the waters and encompassed the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales. For what? To teach us that God knows every square inch of the earth. He's in control of it all. So too, here, God is attributed with an affection to teach us what he thinks about sin. And if our text teaches us that God's disposition towards sin is regret and hatred of it, and Samuel's attitude towards Saul's disobedience was grief, then what does that teach us that our attitude towards sin should be? This sad account of Israel's history should bring you to a point of grief 
because of the effects of sin. And bring watchfulness to your own lives to ensure that sin does not beguile you in the same way that it did Saul. Consider Psalm 119, 136, where it says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. It's a sad thing to sin against our wonderfully blessed forever God. And even though Saul acted wickedly and deserved what he got, Samuel's grief over the whole situation really should be our attitude about it as well. And our grief must be accompanied by a watchfulness so that we too would not be ensnared by the trappings of sin. After all, sin is tenacious, always working, fighting, clawing its way to gain sovereignty over our hearts. So what would lead Saul to be so deceived? Forsake Yahweh's commands, create his own standard, refuse responsibility, and only possess this sorry-I-got-caught type of repentance. Where does that come from? It's important because even believers can be wooed away by sin's siren-like call. In Romans 7.21, Paul says, I find then the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. He calls it a principle or a law that is in us. It's not a law to us so that we have no option but to heed sin's call, but it's an unwelcome guest dwelling in us that constantly pushes forward fighting for our affections, thoughts, and ultimately sovereignty over our lives. John Owen compared the the constant pushing of sin as a spring in a river that never stops spewing out water. And you can utilize all the means of grace available to you to plug up that spring. You can cut it off every time that sin shows up and shows its ugly head, but even that grace, plugging up indwelling sin... Sin still pushes up against that grace itself, and that in itself is sin. So long as the Christian is not glorified, the constant lustings against God's grace are working in us, and you need to be aware of it. It's like the law of gravity. It's a law that is always at work to enslave you to the earth. No matter how high or how often you jump, you will always find yourself being pulled back down to the ground. Like the law of gravity, sin is a law that is in, works with and in our sinful nature that drags believers down and seeks to enslave you to its chief architect, the devil. Now as believers, freed from the penalty of sin in Christ, we have strength to fight against this. The more we jump, the more spiritual, our spiritual muscles get built up with the hopeful expectation that one day we're going to fly off to glory and be free from the presence of sin. But as it is now, we must deal with sin. Like a cheesy horror movie where the bad guy never dies, sin is like a monster that just keeps rising up to kill you. So brethren, you got to kick it while it's down. Smash it to pieces while it's seemingly broken. Stay angry at it. Or else it will rise from the ashes to sink its poisonous teeth into you. But how can we fight? against such a tenacious and strong enemy that never lets up. Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, he says, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, 
so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Here it is, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Ignorance of Satan's schemes breeds sinfulness. We are to fight to kill sin, but in order to do that, you need to know sin's strategy to kill you. And so my hope is that by looking at this narrative, we are able to learn how sin deceived Saul, and in so doing, learn how we can be on guard against it when sin comes knocking on the door of your own hearts. Paul told the Corinthians that these things have been written for our examples or our instructions so that we would not crave the same things that Israel craved, 1 Corinthians 10.6. God is just as displeased with sin today as he was in Saul's day. Therefore, it should be every believer's burden to understand sin's insidious devices so that we may properly go to war with it. If you have an interest to love Christ more, and I trust you do, hate your sin more, and to know how to practically disarm your great enemy, then in our text we are going to learn four strategies sin used to deceive Saul that should help you to better understand sin's attack on your own hearts. Now let me give you those four strategies up front. In verses 10 to 13, we learn that sin elevates pride. In verses 14 and 15, we learn that sin creates its own standard. In verses 20 and 21, we learn that sin refuses responsibility. And lastly, in verses 24 and 25, we learn that sin cultivates a worldly sorrow. So sin elevates pride. Sin creates its own standard. Sin refuses responsibility. And sin cultivates a worldly sorrow. Let's begin by looking at the first strategy in verses 10 to 13. Sin elevates pride. It says, Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not established my words. God's indictment is that Saul has not established his words. Saul was commanded to completely annihilate the Amalekites. Back in verse 3, God says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now take special notice of that word, devote to destruction. Three words in Hebrew, one word in, or three words in English, one word in Hebrew. It has the basic idea of banishing something off to utter destruction. It describes a consecration of someone or something as a permanent offering to God. And here in chapter 15, the word is used eight times. All eight times convey the same sense. So there's no mistaking this word. Saul has no excuse. But for Saul, he perceived this word in a different way. God meant annihilate everything. But Saul received the command as destroy what is convenient. Partial obedience. Sin decreased the humility required for obedience and coddled Saul's pride so that he would establish his own way. Saul was not the only one guilty of this. As is the nature of man, the people reflect the leadership. They were just as guilty. The people were not in favor of obeying because look in verse 15. The people spared the best of the sheep and oxen. In verse 21. The people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen. And let's be honest. 
on the outset without internalizing God's word to know why God would command such a horrific fate on the Amalekites, sin would have you questioning and scratching your head as well. Sin seeks sovereign rule over your heart so that you would not so that you would cast out God's commands and replace it with your own reasonings. It causes a man to replace the sunlight of God's knowledge with the torchlights in the night of his own understanding. But I want you to consider the annihilation in the light of God's word, what God's indictment on the Amalekites was back in Exodus 17:14 through 16. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial. A memorial. This was something to be remembered. It says, And recite it in Joshua's hearing that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. And he said, Because he has sworn with the hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And this memorial at least made it through to the second generation of Israelites because in Deuteronomy 25:19 it reaffirms the same judgment. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Well, apparently, they forgot. Like the naysayers of today who claim that the God of the Bible is a tyrant who is pro-massacre, Solomon's words prove true. That there is nothing new under the sun because Saul and the people of Israel were the same and decided that God's commands are too radical. And they offered partial obedience as a substitute. Now, this is an important point. Because what this tells us is that Saul, the king of Israel, did not know the scriptures. Deuteronomy 17, 18 tells us that the king was supposed to know and internalize the scriptures to keep a scroll with them. But the word of God did not dwell in Saul. And so sin, taking every opportunity to take advantage of this, puffs up Saul's pride to establish his own law. Look again at verse 13. Samuel approaches Saul to confront him. And Saul glories in his pride, in his disobedience, saying, Blessed are you of Yahweh. I have established the word of Yahweh. No, you have it. Saul is so prideful that he thinks he can fool God's prophet into believing that the disobedience he offered was acceptable to God. The word of God was not established through Saul's actions. Faith without deed is dead. And yet sin appealed to Saul's pride to actually believe that he established the words of Yahweh. Sin elevates pride. Had he known the scripture, surely he would have known that the Amalekites deserved it. And God is exceedingly patient, giving them time, generation after generation, to repent. If only the word of God was dwelling in Saul, surely he would have recognized the amazing, compassionate, and slow to anger God towards sinners. Between the judgment on the Amalekites given in Moses' day and the command to execute that judgment in Saul's day was a few hundred years. The Amalekites obviously never repented in those years, and God's patience and kindness was toward them the whole time. Verse 18 calls the Amalekites the sinners, which expresses that they had not changed. God is slow to anger, abounding in love, waiting for sinners to repent, and yet there is a time that grace ends and judgment begins. 
That time had come for the Amalekites. But sin played on Saul's willful ignorance. Now our word established here in verse 13, it has the sense of establishing a decree. In Proverbs, it speaks to the divine work of God to establish creation. And in other places, like in Leviticus 27.19 and 25.30, it's translated figuratively as purchased in reference to a land and a house. And here's the picture. Sin fed on Saul's pride so that rather than admitting that he did not obey the command of God, he purchased his own decree. Saul purchased for himself a way which seemed right to him, but its end led to the removal of the throne. You could feel the burden why God is timelessly disappointed with unrepentant Saul and all those like him who established their own way in place of God's ways. And friend, this leads us to our next strategy. Sin elevates pride and sin creates its own standard. Creating your own standard, it's really the overflow of not treasuring the word of God in your heart. You remember Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now look at verses 14 and 15. Samuel said, What then is this sound of the sheep in my ears and the sound of the oxen which I am hearing? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. But the rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel calls Saul's bluff and says, You didn't obey Yahweh. Otherwise, these animals would be utterly destroyed. And Saul's excuse is, The people, and me by implication, decided to spare the animals. And for a good service, too. God commanded Saul in verse 3, Do not spare. And yet Saul says in verse 15, We spare them for God. This is a new standard. And Saul was perfectly fine with this new standard that sin had cultivated in his heart. To spare that which God commanded to destroy was sheer disobedience. Now that word spare, it means to feel compassion or to pity someone. It holds a mercy towards the object. A good example of this is in Exodus 2.6 where pity or compassion is shown to Moses. Our word spare is used there to describe the attitude of Pharaoh's daughter toward him. She demonstrated pity or compassion to spare his life. Even though Pharaoh had commanded that all the baby boys were to be annihilated, she defied the king's commands with the instrument of mercy. So by way of reversal, God commands Saul to annihilate the Amalekites. He instructed Saul through Samuel to not spare Amalek. Show no mercy. And yet we see that Saul deliberately disobeyed his marching orders from God. Sin elevated his pride and sin created its own standard. Sin showed Saul another way. He should have been watchful against the insidious attacks of sin. He should have paid close attention to how sin seeks to justify itself before a holy God in the name of my circumstances allow it. He made the mistake to think that the Lord approves of his sinful ways for whatever reason. Saul never pondered his own sin and never went to war with it. 
Instead, he waged war against God's ways. And from the testimony of Scripture, it does not appear that he ever repented. Let that sink in for a moment. Saul is in hell to this day. And this tragic story serves as his eternal noose in the flames of judgment. The standard that he created for himself is the very standard that hangs over his head in hell forever. And so, brethren, we must learn from this. We must seek every opportunity to give sin a fresh blow so that sin would not lead us astray to our own peril. There's two more strategies to go. The next strategy sin used to deceive Saul is a refusal of responsibility. Sin refuses to take responsibility for its outworking. Look with me again at verses 16 through 21 with a special focus on 20 and 21. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh spoke to me last night. And he said to him, Speak! And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and Yahweh anointed you king over Israel? And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed? Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh and went on the way on which Yahweh sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God at Gilgal. The word of God comes to Samuel a second time to appeal to Saul. There's still time, Saul. There's still opportunity to repent. And so Samuel seeks to come alongside Saul to help him put to death the sin that so easily besets him. And after Samuel makes it crystal clear that Saul disobeyed God, he continues in verse 20 to assert his obedience and blame shift any and every sin that does exist upon the people. Sin refuses responsibility. I was obedient to God, Samuel, but it was the people who did not obey the word of God. Sin used the device of blame shifting Like Adam back in the Garden of Eden who would look at Eve and say, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And post-fall conclude, it was that woman who made me do it. The devil does not change his playbook. The same strategy that has worked from the beginning continues to plague man today. The king was supposed to be a representative for the people. The king was to care and serve the people. But this king placed his own cowardice and sinful disobedience upon others. But Saul, you're supposed to represent the people. His answer, they did it. But you're the king. God has given you a wonderful position to serve the people of God. I serve myself. Compare that with the true king, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the burden of his people to wash away their sins by means of his sinless life and sin-atoning death on the cross. 
Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. Who came to save sinners like you and I from the penalty of sin, which is the fires of hell. He tasted death on the cross that we may live forever from the presence, free from the presence of sin forever. The true king is the one who knew no sin to be made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While Saul tried to impute his sins upon the people, Jesus takes the people's sins upon himself, bearing the wrath of God, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and concludes, it is finished. Sin led Saul in an exercise of hatred to cast his iniquity upon the people. He was not loving his neighbor as himself to blame them. But love led Christ to bear in his body the iniquities of us all. And so he refuses all responsibility and is even willing to throw his own people under God's judgment to save himself. If the original audience was to learn any lesson from reading this tragedy in 1 Samuel 15, they would learn that Saul is everything that the expected Messiah is not. This phony king is ultimately a foil of the true king who would come to save his people from their sins. Sin cowered Saul to the point that he would not bear responsibility for his own sinfulness. Sin elevates pride, sin creates its own standard, and sin refuses responsibility. Now I want you to notice something about Saul's relationship with the Lord. In verse 15 he says, To sacrifice to Yahweh your God. And again in verse 21, he says, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, not my God. This gives us a glimpse into Saul's heart, does it not? Not my God, but your God. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. We've already concluded that Saul did not have the word internalized in his heart. What makes you think he would have the God of the word internalized in his heart? In every insidious way that you can think of, sin separates you from God. It is any lack or conformity to His will. Or as John says, sin is lawlessness. To harbor sin in your heart and not repent is to separate you from a holy and blessed God to whom man will give an account to. How precious should the Word of God be to the believer Psalm 139.17 says, To me, O God, how precious also are your thoughts. Psalm 40, verse 8, I love to do thy will, O my God. Your word is in my heart. Or Paul says in Philippians, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To me, the believer has the privilege to cling to God as his own. To me, O God, your thoughts are precious to me. Sin caused Saul to refuse responsibility because of a failure to treasure God in his heart. Now lastly, the fourth strategy that sin used to deceive Saul is a false repentance. Sin cultivates worldly sorrow. Now let's look at our text one last time. Verses 22 through 26 with a focus on 24 and 25. And Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed trespassed against the command of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now please forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship Yahweh. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel combated Saul's excuses by affirming that Yahweh demands full obedience. Sin led Saul to believe that in God's eye there must be these venial sins that do not bring forth the wrath of God. But Samuel makes it clear, rebellion is like divination, communicating with the dead, an abomination that Saul would hypocritically involve himself with by the end of this book. And insubordination is equivalent to idolatry, the breaking of the second commandment, thou shalt not make for yourself a graven image. Samuel calls him out, Saul, there are no venial sins. There is no such thing as a sin that does not bring forth the wrath of God. Perhaps Samuel could have said, don't you remember, Saul, what happened in the Garden of Eden? They merely ate some fruit and it brought condemnation to all men of every generation. And it is a sober reminder that all sin is punishable under God's wrath. Jesus most certainly did not believe in venial sins. You remember in Matthew 5.21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says to his brother, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It's not simply the outward action that is worthy of judgment. But God judges the intention of the heart. He judges the spring of indwelling sin that pushes up against God's ways. Saul's response should grieve your heart. He responds in an outwardly appropriate way. He utilizes the right mechanisms of repentance, agreeing with God that he sinned and asking for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, but didn't Judas himself utilize what seemed to be a good mechanism of repentance by throwing the money back at the Pharisees? What a scary thought. That the flesh can fabricate a repentance that looks like a genuine repentance. The difference lies in the intention of the heart. Some have argued that Saul tearing Samuel's robe in verse 27 is a genuine sign of Saul's repentance. But true repentance bears fruit in keeping with it. And we do not see any fruitfulness from Saul in the days to come. For Saul, it's too late. He could have said, this the first time or maybe even the second time and perhaps things would have been different but now his heart is exposed as one who is only concerned with the consequences of his sin more than the one whom he sinned against and even still after this train wreck after God rejecting him as king he still could have repented for the salvation of his soul but I feel confident by the course of his life as the story unfolds that he ultimately refused 
Dale Ralph Davis says, He could have said, Yahweh's word is firm. I cannot reverse it. I cannot now get things back to normal. But I can confess that Yahweh's word is right. I can bow my back under its rod. I could submit to this hard word and live in obedience to Yahweh from this point on. But as the book of 1 Samuel unfolds, his life demonstrates that his repentance was fake. And especially becomes evident when he continually attempts to kill David, God's chosen king, who's better than him. Sin cultivated a worldly sorrow in Saul that caused him to be more concerned with the consequences of his sin rather than having concern with the one whom he sinned against. What would it have looked like for Saul to demonstrate godly sorrow? Well, we know this by, look, by Paul's telling us in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-11, through 11, Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. A lot of regret in 1 Samuel 15. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. True repentance zealously makes right the wrong. It holds anger towards sin and fears God rather than man. True repentance is Zacchaeus paying back everyone that he stole from because he became born again. It's David breaking down in Psalm 51 after being confronted by Nathan the prophet or the tax collector who's even unable to look his eyes up to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. True repentance is accompanied by a hatred of sin a desire to make right what I have made wrong, a desperation to fall upon the mercy of God. And the end of this worldly sorrow that sin cultivated in the heart of Saul led to God's rejection of him. Look at verse 35. So Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God spoke to the king through the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Saul in verse 10 through Samuel. The word of the Lord came again to Saul in verse 16 through Samuel. And by the end, Saul lived out the rest of his days without a prophet, thus in utter silence from Yahweh for the rest of his days. Here you go, Saul. Have it your way. And so we learn from this story four strategies that sin used to deceive Saul. Sin elevated his pride. Sin created its own standard. Sin refused responsibility. And sin cultivated a worldly sorrow. So what are we to do about it? What are we to think about this in reference to our own lives? What should we do knowing that such a strong enemy that lived in Saul lives inside us? And these four strategies surely are not the only four ways that sin attacks us. Our hearts are unsearchably sinful, which is why we need the Holy Spirit to lay the axe at the root of the tree, because it is only God who is able to search the depths of our heart. 
So there is a need to be like David in Psalm 139, who after meditating upon the omniscience of God, concludes in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. So let me give you some exhortations from this. Exhortation number one, we must be watchful. We must be watchful. Even though sin may be lurking in the shadows of your heart, where you are not able to discern it, you need to be aware that it's still there and it's still working. It's still pushing forward against the grace of God with all of its fury and all of its lust. And when you're at a spiritual high, sin is still at work and it requires your attention. After being tempted by the devil, Jesus resisted him and he fled. But it says that of our great enemy, the devil, in Luke 4.13, And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Did you catch that? The battle was won, yet the devil only left to re-strategize and come back in an opportune time. And just the same, indwelling sin works with us in the same way. Sometimes you resist, you obtain victory. And think that you have arrived, having conquered sin, only to find out that it returns with more strength. And so again, I say, there is a need for watchfulness. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 9, 43-47. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell and to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Why would you want all of your senses in hell? It is better to go to heaven with one eye, one foot, and one hand then both hands, both feet, and both eyes in hell. And so exhortation number two, we must be people who go to war with sin. Cut it off. To not war with sin is to war with God. Partial obedience is disobedience. Sin packages itself in a shiny lure. It looks good and offers the world as its limits. Sin whispers to the heart. Everything the world has can be yours. Just take it. This one act of selfishness surely will not bring forth the wrath of God upon your life. Or if God truly wants the best for you, then he will give you the desires of your heart, right? That's a scary thing for God to give the desires of our sinful hearts. And slowly slithers away in victory, letting you go through the pain and anguish of your own choices. But my question is, what if you got everything that you wanted in this world? What if sin actually delivered on its promise and gave you the prestige and the health and the wealth and the prosperity that you seek? What if you got all of your heart's desire in this world? Tell me this, what does it profit if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Are not the glories of the king of kings enough? Is the surpassing value of knowing Christ not enough for you to sell all your belongings, to buy the field and treasure it? Exhortation number three. Understand that the war of sin never ends in this life. 
you need to remember the war of sin never ends in this life. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 commands, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. This is a present tense command, meaning we are to continually be angry at sin. As Joshua prayed for the sun to stand still until all the enemies could be destroyed, we are to pray for the sun to not go down on our anger towards sin. Otherwise, the devil has an opportunity to enslave us with his insidious devices. And Christian, do not fall to despair. Because even though sin is always bubbling out of our hearts, out of that spring, and constantly plaguing us until the day that we die, one day you have a hope, a hope that does not disappoint, that we will be free from the miserable presence of sin, by which there are no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, and all of sin's effects upon our lives will be gone. And you will not just be able to sin or not to sin, but you will be glorified, unable to sin. It's gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 53-57, Paul, glorying over this truth, says, For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible, and this mortal must put on the immortality. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on the immortality, then will come about the word that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is swallowed up. What a glorious truth for our hearts to dwell on. The struggles that you have with sin will one day end, never to return again. All because of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a hope to look forward to. Exhortation number four. We need to drench ourselves in the Word of God. If you haven't thought about that already, you should be thinking it now. Drench yourselves in the word of God. What a sad truth to read that Saul never heard from God after this incident. His only relationship with God from this point forward would be that of judgment. Saul went from receiving the word of the living God from the prophet to receiving a deceitful spirit from the sovereign Lord. God's utter silence brought much bitterness and jealousy in Saul towards David because sin cultivates a hatred towards God's people. And so too, if we be people who reject God's word, who refuse to repent and give, and give sin a handle to exercise its insidious strategy, we will become an enemy of God's people. When sin does its work of pride, it gives birth to hatred of others as Saul demonstrates with his blame shifting. So what humility should this bring to us, brethren? How much should it grieve our hearts when we see our brothers or sisters trapped in sin? Rather than being like Saul, who's willing to impute his own sins to the people, shouldn't we have care to be our brother's keeper? It should grieve you to the core when your brother sins. How horrifying it is to see a professed believer boastfully declare his allegiance to God and then hypocritically establish his own way. And if you recognize the grief that you should feel toward one another, to amp it up a little bit more, just think how much it grieves your pastor when you sin. 
Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Surely you want your pastors to have the same joy as the Apostle John in 3 John 4 when he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Sin coddles the pride of man so that he would go his own way, which seems right to him, but its end is the way of death. And this grieves your brothers and sisters, and most certainly those who have oversight over your soul. And so rather than showing the same level of ignorance of the word of God that Saul did, let us drench ourselves in the word of God to be Bible men and women. That way we could be equipped to understand the strategies and be watchful against sin's attacks on us. Rather than wearing the necklace of sin around your neck, put on the necklace of kindness and truth. That way you would have good repute before God and man, Proverbs 3.3. 3. And lastly... A final exhortation. For you, the unbeliever, who hears these words and knows that you labor for your father, the devil, know this, as sin cultivates worldly sorrow, it is only the gospel that cultivates a godly sorrow. I want to be straight with you because love rejoices in the truth. Right now, sin has blinded you. And everything you have ever believed that contributes to the delusion that you're right with God has deceived you. Sin is your great enemy. Its chief architect is the devil, who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But as sin blinds the minds of the unbelieving, friend, I place before you today Jesus, who opens the eyes of the blind. There is no hope to anyone who would neglect so great a salvation. And this is how he accomplished it. God sent forth his son to save sinners. No one coerced him. God did not have to do it. No one twisted God's arm to send Jesus. He is perfectly content and needs nothing. Now he is blessed forever. But the scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Out of sheer love, God sent Jesus into this world to accomplish terms of peace for hell-bound sinners like you and I. He lived the sinless life that we owe God and then went to the cross to pay the debt for sinners like you. In Him, friends, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form so that as God, His perfect life and atoning death is of infinite value far better than the temporal delights that what sin can offer you. And as man, he is able to be our substitute, far better than someone like Saul can offer you. To live the life we owe, to die the death we deserve, and ultimately rise victorious from the dead three days later and put to death this great enemy we call sin. And so today, dear sinner, repent with a godly sorrow. Not like Saul, and turn with the eye of faith to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to how the spring of sin that dwells in your heart dries up. So call upon him. He will not despise any who will call upon him. He says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Your sin is great, but Christ is greater than your sin. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Christ who defeated this great enemy that plagues us each and every day. We struggle and we battle against it. And too often we continually just fall short. I pray, Father, that we keep our eye on heaven, that we would be reminded that our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. We belong to you, the king, that we would be watchful against that which offends you, that we would be aware of sin's attacks on our own hearts, not only so that we'd go to war to kill sin, but we would be watchful against sin trying to kill us. And I pray, Father, that each and every day Christ is placed before our minds morning and evening so that sin would fade away in the glory of Jesus Christ by beholding Him. We love you. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.